Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, we are on radio, but we're also awash in media. Our phones and devices keep us in constant touch with our friends, our family, and the wider world. And our children plunge into this headlong new technology with all its advantages and pitfalls. And today, we hope that we're going to use the medium of radio to have a conversation about how screens and screen time have entered our lives and how that trend intersects with the challenges for adolescents to grow up healthy and resilient. Happy to have some guests in the studio who can help us with that. Uh, Kendra Rudolph Rand is a parent, and she brought the idea to me um, because she's helping to organize a program later on um, at the Jessup Library. So we'll talk about that. Welcome to you, Kendra. Thank you. Also with us is Ian Cameron. Ian is a lecturer in the Human Development and Family Studies uh, program at the University of Maine. Welcome, Ian. Good morning. Thank you. And Edith, or Edie Dubois, um, is a social worker at Mount Desert Island Regional High School System based in the uh, Bar Harbor um, School System at Connors Emerson. Welcome to you, Edie. Thank you. Um, perhaps each of you could um, p- provide a little bit of background to our listeners so that they kind of understand um, your your path to, to get where you are and, and how you intersect with, with this issue. Kendra, perhaps you, we could start with you as a, as a parent. Um, tell us a little bit about um, where your kids are in the, in the spectrum of, of of thinking about technology and screens and and why you're interested in this topic. Right. Oh, thanks so much for bringing this topic up today and inviting us to talk about this. My daughters are almost six and almost eight. Mm. And so as my husband and I are quick to comment regularly, we're just a few years out from having two teenagers in the house. And I know that a lot of my friends who are parents of, of kids the same age my daughters are, we feel like now's the time to sort of figure out what our plan is to have uh, teens and screens at the same time growing up in our household. And it's one of those areas that I feel like I'm kind of consistently on my back foot and I'm trying to get ahead and learn what I don't know already. Um, And so that's the beginning of a lot of what I've been thinking about already for this, but there's so much more to learn, and that's what's led us to a lot of this conversation now, too. Mm. Ian, I, I uh, first encountered you when you were part of the Youth Conservation Corps back in many years ago. Yes, you uh, knew me during my formative years well, as an you, adolescent. Um, you were a mentor. Us, tell us a little bit about um, your your kind of career and, and how you ended up um, in human development. The uh, Back in the early 90s, I was part of a pilot program in uh, Piscata County called Project Life Jackets, which was a uh, program for adjudicated youth. They were uh, essentially convicted of petty crimes such as theft, burglary, uh, two brothers broke into a house and smeared fish guts all over the place. And working with uh, middle schoolers, teenagers, led to graduate school. Then I became a family therapist for a social service agency. That led to being a consultant for a private uh, 
Charter High School in Harlem, New York, um, where I brought the entire school with their teachers and the kids to uh, northern Maine for mm. rafting, high ropes, low ropes, camping. Uh, the following year, we brought the social, or the social studies, history, and English department in the uh, footsteps of Thoreau canoe the Upper West Branch, go whitewater rafting uh, on the Penobscot and climbing Katahdin. Uh, then uh, was, that led to becoming a consultant for the Fortune Society in New York City, which is a post-release program for previously incarcerated individuals. And I designed a program for these uh, gentlemen who had been released from prison and bringing their sons to northern Maine to mm. remove them from their familiar environment. And then I've been on the faculty at uh, UMO since 2007, and I'm in the Department of Child and Family Studies, and one of the courses I teach is adolescent development. Mm. Um, and human development is the discipline from the cradle to the grave, from the womb to the tomb, uh, lifespan or stage development in one of these stages obviously is adolescence mm. and human development is biological social and psychological change across the lifespan mm. and again adolescence being one of those stages sure and one that we all have gone through in this in this group um, Edie a little bit about your own background and how you come to this work Yes, I've been with the school system since 2010, and I do work primarily at Connors Emerson um, as a social worker. And what I noticed a few years ago, um, probably about three years ago, what started happening when I would meet with students one-on-one, -on -one, and this was more at the high school level, is that many students would come in to see me and then immediately open up their laptops and that that was something that was different um, the inability to just sit with a person and look them in the eye while you have a conversation they had to have a screen in front of them so hmm. um, and we see this every day at, at, at schools um, how to navigate hmm. educating students um, how to allow them their screens, um, also how to encourage uh, after-school activities or um, what have you. So I just I think it's a, a tricky dance sometimes. Mm. Well, I was I, I can always hear my mother um, kind of in the background mm -hmm. saying, "Turn that damn TV <laughs> off and get outside." Yes. Right. So that was probably my kind of connection. And what were your some of your family norms around what, what was whatever screen time was for you? Um, what, what, were, what, what were the family norms about screens and 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 socialization? Kendra, what do you remember? About I think about that a lot too. I had a really fortunate childhood in that. I I had a lot of access to outside wilderness time and, and mm. I can rec recall my mom saying almost exactly the same words your mom said to you. Um, and so, but I also had a house that was filled with board games and books and music. And one thing I recall about my childhood is a lot of joyful solitude. So I was really able to tap into alone time with joy and sort of imaginative play. And it's it hasn't been until I've read and learned more about children not having as many opportunities to do that now that I can reflect on my own childhood and think, gosh, I had that a lot. Mm. And I'm really grateful for that 
being part of my childhood. Um, you know, we certainly weren't off the grid growing up. Definitely television, like, um, gosh, the golden ages of um, 80s sitcoms and 80s PBS programming were constant fixtures in my house growing up, for which I'm grateful because I think that there was real value in some of that programming back then. But um, I, I think my parents struck a balance of letting us self-regulate, my brother and me self-regulate, but also that gentle reminder to head outside. outside the door. And I find myself modeling that to some extent now, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Edie, how, how, how was your growing up? What were the norms in your family? Well, this seems unheard of now, but we only had four TV channels. We had the basic sure. <laughs> three big stations plus PBS, and that was it. No cable. Um, but we definitely had limits around it. Um, we could watch TV um I guess after homework and after dinner, and um, it was generally about a couple of hours a day, um, and then a regular bedtime, I guess between 9 and 10. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was not inundated as a child with a ton of different options. Um, after school, we always were either outside, uh, we were highly encouraged to do something after school, mm-hmm. um, whether it be a structured school activity or just walking. And Ian, Ian, so. what do you remember about that in the growing up? Growing up on the island, obviously, we were, uh, for lack of a better word, extremely blessed with Acadia National Park. Mm. Uh, one of the when I was in eighth grade, for example, a friend of mine and I canoed down Northeast Creek mm. out into the ocean camped illegally on an island, (laughs) went out at night, pulled lobster traps, cooked them for breakfast the next morning without life jackets, um, (laughs) under no adult supervision whatsoever. In high school, one time we climbed up Mount Champlain and spent the night on top of the mountain to watch the sunrise. Uh, We were surrounded with books. uh, for example, I remember in eighth grade, I brought uh, Jacqueline Suzanne's uh, Valley of the Dolls, which I was reading, because we weren't censored as <laughs> right, kids. Right. And a teacher said, do your parents know you have that book? And I said, yeah, they gave it to me. <laughs> and he says, do you know what's in it? And I said, yeah, do you? And he says, no, I haven't read it. And that was the end of the conversation. Uh-huh. Uh, but we had uh, uh, the television programs from uh, the 70s. Uh, for example, MASH, which was about Korea, but we really knew it was Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, all in the family. Um, but there, by 9 o'clock, we were upstairs either asleep or reading books. Right. How uh, about radio? Was radio part of your lives? I mean, that's a medium, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that, that how we learned about the world. As a child, not in the same way that that television and other media were, but as a young adult, Mm -hmm. definitely. And that was purely because I I just didn't have the resources for for other kinds of media. And so Mm -hmm. as a young adult, that's when radio really came into my life. Mm -hmm. But as a child, no. I'd Mm -hmm. love to know what the rest of you have to say about that. Um, I definitely listened to the radio, but we didn't have talk radio like we no have. I was thinking of music I was oh yes thinking, definitely I was of how, right. did, how did I learn about the, the rest mm-hmm, of the world mm-hmm. it was through you know right. listening to That's WKBW on, yes. know, on Buffalo yes. you know, that one of those big AM uh-huh. stations and and so medium we always right. and, and certainly 
in a sense, the printing press, <laughs> right? We've got we, we've we've brought the world into our lives mm-hmm. in lots of different ways, and now we're at a, a stage mm-hmm. when there's another set of media um, mm-hmm. that we have to be concerned about. Um, Ian, if you could kind of um, help us understand the, the what, what's happening in the adolescent lives, what are some of the the life um, kind of development. Um, tasks that that adolescents are trying to work on the the developmental tasks as he's uh saying there's two theorists that that come to my mind first of all is albert bandura and eric erickson and albert bandura's uh, social learning theory and eric erickson's eight stages of man and the part of adolescence is uh, uh identity versus identity confusion and albert bandura briefly here with this social learning theory that children learn through observing the behavior of others and by imitating uh, that pattern, which is modeling. And as they grow and develop, they imitate the models within their social environment. And first, obviously, they are parents modeling, followed by their siblings, and then ultimately, particularly in middle school and high school years, is their peers. So simply put, Good models yield good behaviors, and what adults do or don't do um, as a role model provide far more important influence in behaviors than what adults actually say. (laughs) Right. Uh, So, and, and this is important, so not only adults, but mentors, teachers, and the like individual, or influence the individual, but more so, more than at any other time in one's life, it's the modeling by peers for adolescents. And when I say adolescents, I use teens interchangeably, and I'll use middle school, seventh, eighth grade, through mm-hmm. high school, and even into emerging adulthood in college. Uh, that was Albert Bandura. The second uh, theorist is Erickson, who I find most relevant in uh, identity formation. And Cognitively, as an adolescence develops, it's the capacity for self-reflection through the cognitive process, processes and the development of the brain, uh, which comes from uh, Jean Piaget's formal operations, i.e. abstract thinking, that makes the consideration through cognitive development uh, on identity issues possible. And so that teens, kids, can use the third person in considering considering themselves in the abstract in a way that young children can't. Mm. Um, And with Erickson, it's during adolescence we find the idea of uh, identity versus identity confusion. And identity is achieved in a, if identity is achieved in a healthy manner, uh, teen establishes a clear and definite sense of uh, who they are and how they fit into their world. And the alternative is identity confusion, which is a failure to form a stable and secure identity. And identity formation involves reflecting on what your traits, abilities, and interests are, and then sifting through the range, and this is important regarding this discussion, through the range of life choices available in one's culture and society Hmm. so that we get to try out various possibilities and ultimately making commitments. But as Erickson uh, noted, that a a sense of identity is never gained nor maintained once and for all, but it's constantly lost and regained through our lifespan. But the key here, I think, is 
sifting through the range of choices in one's own culture and society. And we have a tremendous amount of choices <laughs> because of media. Right. And I'll use the term media interchangeably through radio, internet, smartphones. Um, because we are exposed to so much, and some people would argue we're exposed to too much. Mm. Um, and this can lead some teens to a period of psychosocial moratorium when a teen postpones adult responsibilities while trying on various possible selves. And this is a good thing. Mm. Uh, the downside is that identity diffusion that combines no exploration and no commitment um, or as we find in more kids, they have an identity moratorium, and which means that they're, they have exploration but no commitment to anything. And so teens are trying out different personal, occupational, and ideological possibilities without committing to anything because there's such a broad array available. That's a lot. That, that's a whole graduate program. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's really important to, to recognize that all um, people go through these kind of processes, not necessarily in a linear linear fashion. As Erickson says, it's back and forth, and 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 we're always adapting to that. So are there? Some we're always still trying to find ourselves. Right. Right. So um, are there particular things that are particularly challenging in this day and age with the media choices that get in the way of some of that? Um. Kids, and particularly with the uh, uh, kids, will spend uh, teenagers spend more time with peers than they do with anybody else. Mm. More time with peers than family. More time, uh, even in school, we're under the influence of teachers, but they're still with their own peers. Um, and this influences the style of dress, their hair, their speech, their music, uh, which comes from the media, um, and adults try uh, to either moderate and make all of this less disruptive to the adult world, or, and this is the kicker too, adults try to profit <laughs> by selling kids stuff, <clears throat> whatever it might be. Uh, from an anthropological perspective, Margaret Mead, as far back as 1928, uh, noted that in times of rapid technological change, and it's hard for us now to think, oh, in 1928, people are still using campfires. Uh, but this is a period of the development of uh, telephones, cars, recorded music. Um, kids tend to look to one another for instruction in a variety of aspects of life. And Margaret Mead described how the rate of technological change in a culture influences the degree to which Teens receive teachings from adults and each other. So in a society where the rate of change is slow, what kids need to learn and function as adults changes little from generation to generation, and they learn from their elders. But since the Industrial Revolution, um, and now with the Digital Revolution, the pace of technological change has increased so dramatically such that the needed skills that are most important change with each generation. Um, obviously, we're talking about the internet computers. So, for example, Bill Gates uh, developed a, his DOS system, operating system, in his 20s. Steve Jobs started Apple in his garage in his teenage years, and Mark Zuckerberg did Facebook while he was in college. Um, hmm. But 
On the other hand, adults have more experience than teens and have more years to accumulate knowledge and wisdom. So, um, given those kinds of concerns, um, Kendra, what, you know, you've got um, daughters that you're, you're, they're moving towards teenagehood. What concerns you about screen time and, and the, the media that they will, they're already exposed to, but are going to be exposed to more? Right. I think it's important to reflect on what Ian just described because it's humbling to reflect on the part that, <clears throat> excuse me, every generation of parents feels like, oh, this is the most urgent generation of parenting. Things are changing so rapidly. And so, you know, reflecting on, on Margaret Mead and even the, you know, the, the various revolutions that have changed the way we think about raising our kids, it's comforting, I think, to, mm-hmm. in some ways to know that this is not a new thing that parents are grappling with. That said, it does feel really urgent right now, right? It just feels like things are changing so quickly. And my husband is wise and quick to remind me that it's great to come up with a plan now and reflect on what concerns us, but we really don't know in 10 years when we'll have a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old in our home what, what will be different from now. And so I think it's good to keep all of that in mind, both from a like a sociologically comforting perspective and also, yes, the time is now perspective. But I think to your question, Ron, about you know what questions and what concerns do I have right now? Um, it's just that, you know, I, I suppose that I have in my humble quest to learn what I don't know, have come across some books and resources and essays, namely, uh, American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers by Nancy, Nancy Jo Sales. That was a particularly alarming read, especially as a, a mother of daughters, where uh, a lot of young, uh, young women's and girls' needs for validation about their image, about their friendship status, is, it's, a very, um, it's just a very pervasive way for young, young girls um, in, in particular, but this certainly applies to, to boys and girls alike. Um, so that book was an alarming read and, and also not a very optimistic read. So I don't know if I necessarily recommend it. Um, another book by Emily Bazelon called Sticks and Stones, and it explores how bullying is a really complex concept to reconcile in a social media age. And then certainly essays and books by Sherry Turkle have gotten me thinking about this you know, as being an urgent issue to figure out as a mother right now. Um, but, you know, on the whole, it's certainly something that I think is best tackled by sharing and trading resources and experience. And that's honestly what's led to my desire to have conversations just like this one and mm. continue to learn from other people who are navigating the same questions. And certainly historical references are useful and mm. in engaging as many voices as we can. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. And this conversation is about screen time and kids, our guests in the studio. You've just heard from Kendra Rudolph Rand, a parent. Uh, Ian Cameron is with us from the University of Maine and Edie Dubois from the Mount Desert Island Regional School System. Um, Edie, um, you kind of come at this as a as kind of in the in the middle of what's happening at the school level um, and the community itself. Tell us a little bit about how you're seeing this all play out. Well, I think with education and um, parents are also very hungry to know how to navigate the waters of um, screen time um, and 
Is there anything in particular? Well, what are you seeing at the at the school level? Um, schools are certainly using the technology mm -hmm. to um, further the educational process. Uh -huh. um, but um, probably there are kids who show up with a, a cell phone or a smartphone. Definitely. So how, how does that all play out? Definitely. Um, I would say it's more at the middle school level that students have phones um, and they turn them in and then get them back at the end of the day. Now, this is not with every single school. Um, it, it's it's different um, with, but at where but I the general rule. general yeah, yeah. general um, and there are different. It's what I call culture and climate in each classroom. Um, some teachers, you walk into their classroom and the students know, okay, I'm, I can't get out my device until the teacher says, okay, now it's okay to do this. Um, students definitely need reminders to put away devices. Um, the high school, I think they definitely, that's much more prevalent, the cell phone use than um, what we see in the elementary level. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a daily dialogue mm -hmm. that we are having. Kendra mentioned the, the um, concept of bullying uh, or self-image and mm -hmm. how that's influenced. And uh, do you see um, kids who are affected by some of those issues? And do you see any interaction or intersection with screen time and those kinds of issues and concerns? We do. Mm. Yes, mm. we certainly do. And yeah. so how do, you, um, how do you educate parents about that? How do you yeah. educate teens about that or, yeah. or students about yeah. that? Again, it's, a, it's an ongoing dialogue between mm -hmm. all parties. Um, um, no, no hard and fast rules, but it sounds like you're trying to make people aware yes. that there are some um, some drawbacks that they need to be concerned about. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. We we certainly hope that you, um, as listeners, will participate in our conversation today. So um, I'll open up our phone lines now: one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight or four six nine zero five zero zero. Give us a call and um, share your experience, your questions, uh, your insights about screen time and kids. Kendra, I would just add to what Edie described as as a, a, a Connor's Emerson parent. The little I've observed as far as the educators being on top of this, I've just been really impressed with, and and um, it can't be an easy day-to-day -day task. And the little I, I've um, just discussed very sort of peripherally among educators and parents, I feel lucky that, that the school districts in our area are really engaged and really capable of continuing that mm -hmm. ongoing daily dialogue that you describe, Edie. Right. Yeah. Ian? That, to build on what uh, Edie and Kendra said, that the... The question, questions of how adolescents use media um, and how media becomes part of their socialization experiences is extraordinarily complex. Mm. Uh, I mean, let's be blunt here. There's an off button. That doesn't work. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Keep going. You know, if just if it bothers you, shut it off. I see. Um, but it does. The world does not work that way. Okay. So, in terms of um, the the individual, the individual can turn it off. But in families, there probably need and in classrooms, there needs to be some ground rules. And I think that's where we might go in, in in the next part of the conversation. How can we create those kind of family or classroom ground rules that make sense and 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 protect uh, folks? But first, we have a phone call from Brooklyn. Um, go ahead with your question. Question or comment, David? 
Yes, go ahead. David, are you there? Issue. Yes, go ahead. Uh, do you hear me? Yes, now we can. Uh, I think this is a really important issue, and I'm glad you're covering it. Uh, I, I have two things to say. One is that uh, just a recent thought, as you were saying, they can turn it off. Uh, the, the adults that are in charge of engineering these things are really good at constructing them so that it is almost impossible for the, the addiction-prone uh, mind to turn it off frequently. And I think it's very important to remember that. Uh, the other question I have is, I, there was a list of books which were mentioned, and I have just turned into the program just a few minutes before that list, but I heard one of the books being dismissed as being too discouraging, and so it wasn't worth looking at. At least that's how I understood it. I think that's a very dangerous point of view. I think if we don't look at the discouraging information, we stand in grave danger of being really derailed seriously. I think you're, you're probably right, and I think our, our speaker would uh, confirm that. Thanks so much for your call, David. Okay, you're 1-866-625-9378. Um, give us a call if you'd like to participate in this conversation about screen time and kids. So David has raised you know, a couple of things. One has to do with this notion, is, is screen time addictive in some way? And um, before we came on air, Ian, you were talking about um, screen time sometimes gives us so the, the pleasure, um, um, what, what's that, the, the dopamine? Dopamine. Dopamine. If we could synthesize that and give everybody a vial of it, uh, <laughs> we'd be extraordinarily wealthy and I think the world would be a better place. But every time that we, we get dopamine from a lot of different things. And uh, one of them obviously is our uh, s smartphones. Um, and when we look at that, we get likes on Facebook. We have uh, a, a, a text from a friend, uh, and that pings, and it feels good, and we like that. Uh, but how to regulate that uh, as an individual uh, can be problematic. Mm. Um, mm. And when we're dealing with people, with teens who are still cognitively growing, um, monitoring that is uh, difficult. Um, and how do you tell somebody, you know, that they feel good when they do it? Don't do that. That's bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But I like it. Right, right, right. Well, let's take another call. I think Catherine is on the line. Um, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, I do have a comment. Um, I just feel extremely disturbed about this um, seduction of technology. And I do feel it is a seduction. There's a great conspiracy going on here. First, it was the radio. And everybody was listening to the radio and listening to what Roosevelt had to say or whatever, now starting to think that way. It's all about social engineering, then the great seduction of the television. This rewires the brain. Surely you must all know what it does to the brain if you're really looking into this. Programming is coding. It's causing the brain to react a certain way. And when you get to the teenagers with their home hormone changes and what have you, it's going towards that seduction of base things and thrilling things and sexual things. And I just feel that um, our society has been captured by this. I think there's an agenda afoot. Um, and it's, it's all very, very sad. It's just very, very sad. And unfortunately, I have in my family with my granddaughters the extreme of that. So I've 
witnessed it personally. But just think about what the brain does when it reacts to the stimuli that is coded sublimely in television. It's, there's science behind this. And as far as schools, education, I think it's become indoctrination. Was it ever education really? You know, who is educating from what perspective? So I'm with David. It is addictive, and that's being done on purpose. And I really feel that that should be talked about. But people don't want to believe in conspiracies. But there are a lot of conspiracies that are happening. Great. Catherine, thanks so much for your call. Um, I think David is back on the line. Um, we'll take a brief comment from David, and then we'll try to open up to other listeners. David, go ahead, please. Yeah, I'm still here. I Frankly, I just had to call back because I was appalled at the gentleman's comment that if he, if he could produce dopamine or if he could market it, he'd be very rich. And that, as a matter of fact, it would be a good idea if someone could. And if we all, as I take it in my alarmed state, if we all had extreme access to all the dopamine we wanted, the world would be a better place. <laughs> I want to say no, no, no. Okay, There's David. There's something seriously wrong with that logic, and I invite him to consider what it might be, because I'm not going to go into it right here. Okay. Thanks very much, David. one 625 9378 Our callers are bringing up lots of things. Certainly, um, television and, and uh, all of the media um, is... Uh, commercial media, for except for WERU. Um, and so I, we, we, we recognize, and, and I think we know that um, people are being sold things, whether it's on Facebook or um, it's on uh, television stations, we're, we're certainly being sold things. Um, the question is, how do we, um, as families, as individuals, recognize some of that and create some ground rules that protect us or to that, that allow us to develop um, as we want to as um, young adults and, and eventually adults? So how about this question of, of ground rules? How do you imagine um, having that kind of family conversation? Um, Ian, any suggestions? around that and then others it, it's again one of those things that looks really easy uh, theoretically it looks really good on paper but all of the setting limits setting boundaries starts in infancy um, we know when we have an infant you can put the child down in its basket you go away and do something you come back the infant is still there uh, they begin to grow and they can begin to uh, move. Uh, so we begin again by starting in early stages. Not everybody has uh, the time in order to do this, but it's an ongoing conversation in parenting. Not everybody has two parents, not everybody has a parent. So it's up to teachers, mentors, and adults in kids' lives to work with them. Um, but again, it, yeah, of course, it sounds really easy to sit here in a radio station to talk about parenting skills. Uh, in the real world, it's, um, it's much more difficult. How about, Kendra, you've probably got ground rules in other aspects of your children's lives. How do you have those conversations um, to create the, the ground rules in the first place? Right. You know, as far as when it comes to small screens, we don't have much in the way of ground rules right now. And that goes back to my desire to have as much information as I can and have a game plan as, as strong as I can uh, when, we, when they do have more access to a small device or a tablet or something in the, in the future. It's not that they've never had access to them. Uh, they certainly have, and they're quite dazzled by them, as we all are dazzled by those, those small, tempting screens. 
but they're more inclined to watch, say, a, a favorite program on Netflix. And, you know, I reflect back on what I said earlier about that balance of some some self-regulating and some encouragement from me. Now, my background is in, is in media studies, and so I'm more inclined to hit pause on a cartoon and say, you know, why why do you think that character treated that character that way? Or, you know, what is it? Why is it that you like this show? To try to, I'm sure, much to their annoyance, stimulate some critical thinking about these kinds of things. But the rules, if you want to call them. The rules that I've brought into my own family have a lot more to do with me. And I think that what I've learned in, in some of this early stages of researching and thinking about this is that the first step to take is really an introspective one and thinking you know, about my own screen habits, my own device habits. And I've just learned sort of accidentally to be a little more mindful about them so that I'm modeling the behaviors that I want my girls to adopt later on. Now, I'm by no means perfect in this regard. I still have a lot more to be mindful of and improve upon. But these tools are hard to turn off. They're here to stay. It's a little too late for us to move completely off the grid. And so with that in mind, I adopt a philosophy and and will adopt stronger rules that give my girls that ability to also be mindful and responsible with with it with a device someday too Hmm. so right now the rules that my husband and i think about have a lot more to do with ourselves Hmm. before we talk about what we want our girls to follow eventually well that certainly fits in with ian's kind of explanation of learning about um the the world you're observing behavior um we got quick comment and then we're going to take a phone call i think to pick up on what kendra said that when we teach our teenagers how to drive uh, that is a vast web of roadway systems, everything from uh, four-wheeling four in the back roads onto the interstate. And we start slowly. We teach teens the rules of the road. The same applies, uh, the analogy is, to the World Wide Web. There's certain places you can go, certain places you can't go, or certain places that you go to you might want to back out of. Mm. But it needs to be done under guidance, mentoring, and assistance. Great. Let's take a phone call from Vermont. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment, Tom. Hi. Um, I- I'm enjoying the conversation, at least partly because uh, my smartphone um, on the other end of life as an elder um, is uh, it's also a source of distraction, um, but it's also a source of connection. Mm. And it makes me think in general about the uh, difference between the word uh, power and the word empowerment. Uh, my phone uh, is has a screen that, you know, basically is a picture that I took that is a lovely picture. And, and in a sense, it becomes kind of like an eye candy. Um, but uh, in this uh, entitled society, um, we know that um, power corrupts absolutely. You know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and we also know that uh, there is a, a certain amount of empowerment. Uh, and what I mean by that is I used to have a flip phone for years and... I was constantly being barraged by media to get rid of it and, uh, and and get a smartphone. And I said, well, I like my dinosaur, you know, I, I, I prefer it, you know, and, um, and I resisted for many years, but, uh, you know, when I bought the phone, 
uh, at the store, they said to me, uh, you have just gone from a go-kart to a Maserati. And I had to figure out what that really meant. You know, the one thing it means is that I can call the outer ranges of Mongolia, you know, and have some personal connection with the rest of the world through this phone. And and once again, say my voice coming to you and going out over the Internet, you know, once again, connecting to the whole world. Mm. So in this empowerment, it reminds me of going to yoga teacher training, where initially you're just very impressed with your own body, uh, <laughs> with with your capability of of doing so much, and uh, and and learning some regulation over your ability to be in the world, and with that comes a, an enormous responsibility. And that responsibility is what's not being taught. If we legalize marijuana and don't understand that the marijuana is more powerful, then we don't understand what we've been empowered to do. So uh, this whole discussion is very much germane to the empowerment that we as individuals have in media and the media over us. Uh, And so we have to learn that skill of self self-regulation in the way that you'd learn yoga, which is the yoke, the yoke that you take on in order to become more responsible. Tom, thanks so much for your call. It, uh, it, this conversation is wide-ranging, but it does come back to that that dance between power and empowerment and and the self-regulation that uh, Ian mentioned is, is one of the life tasks. Thanks for your call, 1-866-625-9378. Um, Edie, coming back to you in terms of schools, in a, in a classroom, usually it's acceptable for the teacher to kind of create the, the, the ground rules. Um, uh, but is there discussion about just this dance this um this is a tool that you can use um that helps you and yet as ian says there are places you shouldn't go do you have those conversations yes we do yes we do um and i also want to mention there is a website for we use as educators but also as parents commonsensemedia.org um is um a wonderful resource um it gives recommendations about movies um it also again talks about um safe websites um and there is also a national campaign called waituntileighth.org and that is a pledge for parents to um hold off to agree to hold off on buying um smartphones for their children at least until eighth grade um, is there a magic around eighth grade? Is that why eighth? Is that, is there a particular way of, of how people are thinking about the use of a smartphone in that age group? Well, I think, and I might defer to Ian on this one, but that the developmental level um, of the students and just being able to handle it. He mentioned a, a very expensive sports car, and sometimes it feels like they are students are given these devices um, and not properly instructed on how to manage them, how to break. Um, And if parents are interested in getting their child a cell phone, I would have a conversation about what is the purpose of the cell phone. Um, Would it be more prudent to start with a flip phone or a phone that, a track phone that um, has limited 
text ability and, and calling ability um, mm. rather than also a, a computer on it mm-hmm. as well. So this notion that um, uh, sounds like if parents or adults have conversations with um, young people yes. about their use of any right. media, whether right. it's um, what music, what radio, what mm-hmm. books, there's a conversation. And, and Kendra, I love the, the notion that you kind of stop the action. You say, what's going on on that screen? Yeah. What's what's yeah. happening? What tell, yeah. tell me the story that you're hearing from viewing that particular um, movie or cartoon or yeah. whatever. That seems to be where um, uh, um, young people get the chance to find out from mm-hmm. adults what's the rest of the world going on? I, I also think it's very important for families to have times where they are not on their screen, such mm-hmm. as dinner time, uh, going for family walks. Um, sometimes families also do a tech-free week or tech-free weekend. Um, and that balance of also participating in life when you don't always have to have a screen in front mm. of you. Mm. Kendra, you um, are, uh, I think all of the, the folks in, the, in our panel today are also part of um, uh, a, v- a viewing of screen to- uh, Screenagers, a program um, at the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor on the 25th. And I know this uh, show has, this uh, uh, video has been uh, used in other communities, Hamden, I think, uh, as well. Tell us a little bit about that event and, and how you hope uh, uh, parents, teens, community members um, gain from that process. Sure. Uh, This was an idea that really sprang from some conversations with some friends of mine, uh, just an eagerness to learn more about these topics, to do what Edie described, striking that balance, right, from uh, that balance of, of keeping these tools in our lives and using them as a family in a mindful, responsible way, modeling those behaviors, but also, you know, just having as much information as we can about effects on maybe development and, and communities and those kinds of things. And I'm always interested in things that give uh, families tools for great conversations. And a, a really dear friend of mine, Dr. Melissa Carroll, recommended, or she she stumbled across this particular documentary, and we both had a strong interest in it. And we both thought, I wonder if we could, you know, work towards bringing it actually to, to Mount Desert Island. And so um, this is a terrific opportunity. It's an event that is open to the public. It's a free screening of the documentary film, Screenagers. This is part of programming at Jessup Memorial Library. And the screening is co-sponsored uh, between, uh, excuse me, among the Jessup uh, and the Mount Desert Island YMCA and the YWM, sorry, the YWCA of MDI. And those three wonderful organizations have partnered to bring this to the community so that it is free to anyone who wants to watch the programming. Ian Cameron has graciously agreed to attend that screening and he'll be available for questions afterwards, which we're really delighted by. And what I've learned about this film is that it's designed to alert people to the to the issues that we've been talking about just for the last few minutes. It's designed to provide valuable information. And most importantly, a film like this is meant to be a conversation starter. I think any one resource that claims to have all the answers is probably a, probably to be skeptical of. But it's the, the film, what impresses me the most about it, and this comes from a statement by the filmmaker Delaney Rustin, is she said that she wanted it to be an opportunity for uh, parents and young people to watch together and to use this film as that conversation starter. And I just want to add, this this film isn't necessarily for someone uh, who identifies as a parent or someone with a teenager or even, you know, um, an interest in this kind of thing. This this I think there are resources and interesting things to think about for everyone in mm-hmm. this film. And so 
Um, if you are just someone who cares about these kinds of discussions, just cares about your community, uh, maybe you have grandchildren in your life, I think there could be something to take away from this film uh, for everybody. This is on the 25th of January? Right. So the screening, the free screening will happen on January 25th at 7 p.m. at the Jessup Memorial Library. And then there will be a parents' resources roundtable discussion session. Um, Edith has graciously agreed to be a part of that. We're hoping to have some other community educators. That will happen on February 8th at the Jessup Memorial Library, also at 7 p.m. So this is, a right now, it's a two-part programming. There could be more things down the road that the Jessup is building, but for now, those are the two dates to mark in your calendars. Great. Ian, you've seen the the, uh, the video. Um, um, how would you tease people to try to attend? Anything comes out of that video that... It, it's, a, it's a lovely film, uh, and it brings out many, many issues uh, regarding internet use media use um but w one thing that we had been we have always worried about uh we named the digital divide and this was poor versus rich or internet access for example some communities don't have high speed access that's slowly being resolved but one of the, the problem now is the digital divide is in that that devices have gotten cheaper and the digital divide now is on how these devices are being used. Mm. That obviously this wonderful, wonderful technological innovation can uh, create a revolution, for example, like the Arab Spring. Uh, and perhaps, as we suspect, as we'll, per we'll find out in a year or so, it can throw an election and a democracy. Uh, and technology swings a broad double-edged sword mm. both ways mm. uh, just even thinking back 10,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture absolutely incredible wonderful we all have enough to eat now um, but we're all based on corn wheat and rice and were smaller than hunter-gatherers were. <laughs> we have found uh, time for a, a couple more phone calls. If you've got like to participate in this conversation about screen time and kids, give us a call, 1-866-625-9378. In the studio with us are um, Ian Cameron from University of Maine, Edie Dubois from Mount Desert Island Regional School System, and Kendra uh, Rudolph Rand, a parent. Um, what haven't we talked about that you'd like to talk about? Are there other things that um, that, that come to mind. Um, Edie, you've seen um, probably in your in your career with within the schools, you've really seen a change in technology. How are teachers using technology in the in the classroom? And and that's the good side of the of the revolution. What are you seeing there? What's happening? Um, well, at Connors Emerson, we have the. Um, 3D design um, that is very popular. Rick Barter is um, and um, helps out a lot with that. Um, editing um, videos, which is also very um, creative. And oh, I think one of the drawbacks can be about always using screens is that in, in the creative sense, it's going to be the creativity that your computer will allow you uh -huh. to access right. um, rather than your own imagination. So you can write a short story or you can write a song. You don't necessarily need a screen to, to mm -hmm. kind of employ that. Um, but 
we're, we're drawn to that shiny object, aren't we? Right, all of us, right, all of us. Right. I, 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 you just reminded me of something that last year my daughter Rebecca came home um, from first grade, and I said, "So what did you do today?" And she said, "We did we co- we did coding." <laughs> like, and I about fell over. And so I think that's another example of just the you know the depth and breadth that our schools are providing our children those those are really fabulous skills that mm-hmm. my first grader was exposed to and that certainly wasn't on my radar to mm-hmm. bring up as a you know in our family but so I, and I, I'm sure there are more that I'm not even aware of that Connors is doing a well, fabulous job with. I also sometimes teach relaxation skills through video which might sound sort of strange but for students that are um, hesitant to try a breathing technique we can access an app that will help us do that. So you can see on the screen, as your breathing calms down, the picture changes. Hmm. And for some students, again, it's just another tool to get them to Mm -hmm. try it. And then the idea is that once they've tried it a few times, they may be able to do this on their own because I don't necessarily, every time they need to... uh, moderate themselves or manage themselves to go to a screen. Um, but again, if someone... When I brush my teeth, right, right I've yeah. got one of the le- electric right. toothbrushes, uh-huh. and there's a little clock on the on the mantelpiece there, so I know what two minutes is. Right. Because I'm trying to develop the best uh-huh. practices mm-hmm. that I can. Now, I don't need that clock anymore, but right. early on, right. Right. that was a very helpful exactly. technological piece. Exactly. What, what it seems like what we're trying to do is, is help our young people grow up in a world where they have, um, as one of our callers said, this dance between power and empowerment. Um, we want them to get along in this world. We want them to use the tools that um, are provided to them in a healthy kind mm-hmm. of way. And um, so it, it's all about mm-hmm. you know using it that way, modeling it that way, and then trying to have conversations mm-hmm. about some of the impacts that uh, we have. Um, are there other things that we haven't talked about that, that uh, would be important, do you think? Um, sleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> sleep. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about um, that. Um, and this may be more so at the high school level, but we do see at the the middle school level as well that if students or, or um, children have the um, devices with them when they go to bed, they might be tempted to stay up and watch YouTube, Netflix, um, or just getting text messages from friends. It has that interrupted sleep. So um, I... I Again, it's a family decision. However, I know um, many families that have a policy that after whatever time, 9 o'clock, all devices go on the kitchen table or... uh, You've got to recharge those things sometimes. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So have a tech-free night. Uh And also the... um, an hour before bedtime to do something else, read, do, uh, you know, something that's sort of tech-free. Right. So that the notion that, um, yes, we are living in a world where we have very um, invasive technology, um, lots of screens, we can turn it off, we can find other things to do. Ian, you, I think, uh, were mentioning all of the things that, that families could do without screens, um, you know, early on. I mean, it's, it's, it's reading a book, it's going outside, it's, it's making something physical, not something on the screen. All of those things are family activities, um, and, and um, we can encourage that sort of activity mm-hmm. as well. Always. Can I add a few? I love that you brought up the resource for, was it commonsensemedia.org? Yes. That's a great one. And then 
Um, if you aren't able to attend the screening of Screenagers, screenagersmovie.com has a ton of resources on there for educators, for parents. They have a whole resources link, and that link takes you to materials that have um, have information on school cell phone policies, a screen time contract, so if parents want to develop a contract with their kids and say, hey, this is a new, really powerful tool, a Maserati, <laughs> and um, what can we do to make sure we're all using it responsibly as a family, those kinds of things. Research, anti-bullying materials, digital citizenship materials. So there are great resources at the, at the documentaries website as well. And then, um, just so that I'm not remiss, our libraries, I think that, you know, just, just knowing where our local library is is so important. And even though um, the Jessup Memorial Library is hosting this particular screening, all of the libraries in our community have lots of great materials for our young people and families as well. Mm. The, the whole uh, field of human development is, is fascinating, Ian. Um, do you see that um, um, the students in your classes, how are they making use of the human development field um, as they think about these things as we begin to wrap up? I, I don't think I understand your question, Ron. Is that in regards to career choices? Yeah, yeah in terms of looking, looking at human development as a field. Um, that... I just have many, many uh, sociology majors, psych majors, uh, as, as well as child and family uh, majors. And it seems uh, that a lot of our students now are going into the field of uh, uh, geriatrics uh, because of the aging population. And this is a whole new realm uh, for digital technology. As, as our caller mentioned, that um, this is absolutely a, incredibly a fantastic. Right. Uh, one thing to keep in mind regards regarding this conversation is that we are not passive uh, consumers in this technology and we're not as easily manipulated um, as one would like to think or as one would like to believe and it's it, it's much more complex than a simple cause and effect uh, so because people are individuals and people make different choices as individuals uh, for example not all teens like violent video games some as myself i prefer the uh, website emergency kittens uh, <laughs> it's much nicer um okay last word um kendra or Edie. anything else that you'd like to add in terms of your hopes for the future Oh, gosh. Continued dialogue. <laughs> right. Dialogue. Good. Dialogue. And please join us at the Jessup Memorial Library on January 25th for a showing at Screenagers. Thank you all. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure to join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday morning of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section in the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Our theme music is a medley from Karnak on a Bell Lane House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Edie Dubois from Mount Desert Island Regional High School System, Ian Cameron of the University of Maine in the um, School of Human Development, and Kendra Randolph-Reed, Rudolph Rand. There we go. Um, I'm trying to talk too fast. Thanks again to those of you who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to John Greenman for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.